Welcome to Home of the Brave. I'm Scott Carrier. Most cities are built on flat ground, where trees and buildings block the view of the horizon. But Salt Lake City sits in a valley between two separate mountain ranges and has something of the shape of a bowl. Inside this bowl, you can see every other place in the bowl, distances of 20 miles, but nothing beyond it unless you get up on the rim, on top of the mountains, and from there you can see the curve of the earth. This is what I'm used to, living in a bowl, a high desert basin. When I leave town and spend time in flat places, surrounded by trees and buildings, I get claustrophobic, because everything is up close and nothing's far away. And if I stay too long, I have panic attacks. I tell this to my friends who live in flat places, surrounded by trees and buildings, and they say it is I who live in a claustrophobic place among the Mormons. How can you live there, they say? How can you live surrounded by religious fanatics? This makes me defend the Mormons, as they are much like people everywhere. Some are bad, some are good. It doesn't bother me that Mormons believe God grew up as a human being on a planet called Kolob. I'm not upset when they tell me he came to earth in a physical body and had sex with the Virgin Mary. These beliefs, as Jefferson said, neither pick my pocket nor break my bones. And when it comes right down to it, some of the most liberal minds I know come from Mormon families, men and women who'd be careful before criticizing what they don't understand. I have a problem with only one Mormon belief that they are God's chosen people, and he gave this land to them. They call this the land of Zion, and I'm against it. Zionism is a lie used to justify taking land and liberty from other people. God wants us to have it. This does pick my pocket and break my bones, and I hope someday it'll be seen as a ridiculous and archaic notion similar to the belief that the earth is flat. I'm working on a screenplay one where God appears with a bag of golf clubs in the apartment of a successful New York public relations executive. He's depressed, he says, and wants to kill himself. He says he's been a lousy God, and everybody will be better off without him. There are other planets, he says, run by other gods, and there people are happy. And this isn't the first time he's failed. He's had other planets, and they didn't turn out well either. Mars, for example. He just kept thinking he could do better next time. He comes to the PR executive because he's realized he can't actually commit suicide. Says he tried it and it didn't work. So he's decided the next best thing to do is ruin his image. Make it so that nobody wants to pray to him ever again. All we got to do is tell him the truth, he says. The PR executive asks God why he has golf clubs. God says he thought they could get in some rounds while they're going over the details of the media campaign. God says he's been working on his game and that he plays as a human, not as an all-powerful being for religious reasons. When they get out on the course, it turns out God isn't very good at all. He misses shots and gets angry and pounds his clubs into the grass, yelling, God damn it! The plan is to bring back Walter Cronkite and have him announce on the 6 o'clock news that God is a big failure and wants to quit, followed by an exclusive commercial-free interview with the deity himself. 
In the interview, God says he now realizes it was wrong to keep starting new religions, telling different people they were his chosen ones, and then giving them a bunch of land where other people were already living. In his confession, he breaks down and says, I just wanted my children to be happy. I just wanted them to love me. I've tried to leave Salt Lake many times, but I always come back. Now, after living here for nearly 50 years, I'm starting to think this landscape has become part of my body, and I need to see the mountains, Lone Peak, Twin Peaks, Mount Olympus, in order to feel whole. I watch how they change shape with the light. On a clear morning after a snowstorm, they rise up like a wave about to crash down on the city. In the summer haze, they are so small and far away. This isn't how it is for most people who live here. Among the Mormons, it's not the mountains that are important, but Temple Square downtown. We can go down there if you want. I can take you on a tour of Temple Square. But I think we should start across the street from Temple Square with a white marble statue of Joseph Smith in the lobby of the old Hotel Utah. Built in 1911, 11 stories tall, glazed white with a beehive on top, the Hotel Utah offered the finest accommodations between Denver and San Francisco and was known as the Grand Dame. It hosted U.S. presidents, foreign dignitaries, Hollywood movie stars, but turned away Ella Fitzgerald and Harry Belafonte. In 1987, the church closed the hotel and converted it to offices, a genealogy library, meeting rooms, and an IMAX theater now showing Joseph Smith, the prophet of the Restoration. The statue of Joseph Smith stands in the old hotel lobby, which was preserved for historical value. The room is ringed by gray marble pillars, two stories tall, with a stained glass ceiling and an enormous crystal chandelier hanging down in the center. The statue is 10 feet tall and very white. Joseph Smith in a suit coat and bow tie holding the Book of Mormon. You can walk right up and stand in front of him, gazing upon his proud and handsome face. But when you look down about eye level, you see he's wearing some pretty tight pants and there's a six or seven inch bulge between his legs like the back of a white whale surfacing above the water. You can touch it if you want, even rub it like in the Catholic and Hindu traditions, but I've never seen anybody actually do it and I don't know what would happen if you did. Let's go outside and look at the Brigham Young statue. He's up there on top of a granite monolith 25 feet in the air, standing over Main Street, looking southward down the valley. His left arm is raised, palm up and open, as if to say, Someday, my son, all of this will be yours. Brigham Young and Joseph Smith were both strong, charismatic leaders, but their personalities were opposite in nature, like Stalin and Lenin, and so too are their statues. Joseph is carved in white marble, immaculate, while Brigham is cast in bronze that has blackened over time. This is not to say that Brigham has lost his standing among church historians. That's not the case at all. Joseph was a utopian visionary who led by inspiration. Brigham was pragmatic and led with a hammer. Joseph Smith said he was visited by angels, prophets, Jesus Christ, and God himself. 
He said he'd been told that all religions on earth had fallen into apostasy and that he'd been chosen to restore the one true gospel and build a new Jerusalem in America so that Jesus would have a place to come back to. Joseph and his early followers tried building the new Jerusalem in Kirtland, Ohio, then Independence, Missouri, and then Nauvoo, Illinois. But in each location, they were met by opposition and persecution from their non-Mormon neighbors. Then, in June of 1844, in the middle of his campaign to become president of the United States, Joseph Smith was killed by an angry mob in Carthage, Illinois. And it came to pass that the saints of the latter days would move again and find another place to build the kingdom of God on earth. Joseph himself, shortly before he was killed, said he'd received a revelation that the saints were to move to a location in the Rocky Mountains. But it was Brigham Young who brought the saints across the Great Plains to the Great Basin in covered wagons. It was Brigham who was tough as nails and pushed the envelope of space, moving his people outside the territory of the United States and into an uncontrolled part of Mexico where they would be left alone. There were bands of Native Americans living along the western slope of the Wasatch Mountains, but the Salt Lake Valley was a no-man's land, a buffer zone between the Shoshones to the north and the Utes to the south. Later, of course, there were massacres, small and large, but in the beginning the pioneers walked into open space, a high desert basin covered in dry grass and sagebrush. They arrived on July 24, 1847, and Brigham Young already had the map of the new city plotted out in his mind. It was to be a rational system, a Cartesian grid with the temple as the zero-zero origin point, the axes running to the cardinal directions. This earthly city would be a mirror image of the heavenly city where God and Jesus live, and it would be a gathering place where all would be of one heart and mind, the city of Zion. For three days, Brigham Young walked around, scouting out the valley, trying to decide where to put the temple. He knew that whatever spot he chose would be ground zero for time and all eternity. Finally, near the bank of a stream at the northern end of the valley, he jabbed his cane into the dirt and said, This is where we will build a temple to our God. Thus did Brigham Young speak, and thus did the Salt Lake Valley, empty of meaning and purpose, become part of a transcendent reality, absolute. Land was transformed into property, chaos into cosmos. We can't go into the temple, but we can walk right up to it, walk all the way around it, and even touch it. It's made of light gray, almost white granite, quarried from the base of Little Cottonwood Canyon, about 15 miles to the south. It took 40 years to build. They hauled the stone by ox cart and railway and cut it into perfect square blocks and stacked it up so seamlessly and straight that the building looks as if it was carved in place from one giant rock. It has six spires, the highest spire holding the gold-plated statue of the angel Moroni with his long trumpet pointed to the east, an air raid siren for the apocalypse. Inside the temple, the righteous enact rituals called ordinances and covenants, baptisms, endowments of the priesthood, marriages for time and all eternity. These are sacred ceremonies, and the language and symbolism used are not to be discussed in public. They're secrets, 
and even Mormons who've fallen away from the church and no longer believe its doctrines will refuse to speak of the ceremonies that go on inside because of the promises they made there with God. I first heard about these ceremonies when I was eight years old, walking to school with my two friends. They told me they'd just been baptized in the temple, and now they were going to a different heaven than I was, unless I converted. They said there were three levels of heaven, and they were going to the highest one, the celestial kingdom, but the best I could hope for was the second level, the terrestrial kingdom, which isn't a bad place, it's just not the best place. There is, they said, no hell, except for really bad people, sons of perdition, who are cast into the outer darkness. The best thing about the highest heaven, where they were going, was that through the law of eternal progression, they would someday become gods, like our god now, with their own planet, only somewhere else in the universe. They said they were telling me all of this because they did not want me to miss out. They wanted me to start reading the Book of Mormon and praying about whether it was true. Each of us had peach fuzz on our faces and pants with patches ironed onto the knees, carrying new math textbooks. Yet they were on their way to godhood, and I was just walking to second grade. The power of the temple is mighty and strong. Touch it. Feel the rock. Nine feet thick at the base, six feet thick at the top. The foundation goes down 40 feet. When I touch it, I think of Lone Peak, which is the same rock, the same granite. You can stand on top of Lone Peak and look down here and see Temple Square 20 miles away. You can see the whole valley, and then you can ski down into it. That's probably not as good as becoming a god. It's more like becoming a bird. There are four doors on the temple, two on the east and two on the west, but everyone enters and exits through an underground tunnel. The doors will open when Jesus comes back, until then, they stay locked. Since we can't go inside, we should walk around to the flagpole that sits between the temple and the tabernacle in the exact center of the square. From here, you can look up and see the American flag juxtaposed against the upper spires of the temple. This is the money shot. In Utah, church and state go together like muscle and bone, intertwined in Mormon mythology. Joseph Smith believed Jesus Christ raised up our founding fathers and guided their hands in writing the Constitution in order to make a new nation, tolerant of religious beliefs, one where the restoration of the gospel could come about. In other words, Mormons believed the United States of America was designed by Jesus Christ for Joseph Smith to become God's prophet of this last chapter of civilization as we know it. The flag in the temple, the temple and the flag, in the center of the center of the cosmos, where Jesus is going to live when he comes back. This is the axis mundi, the point on which the world turns. I come down here and try to feel it, but it never works. I used to resist the church. I spoke out against it whenever and wherever I had a chance. But one day, a question entered my head. What if... By a wave of the hand, I could wipe out all of Mormon history, erase the whole thing as if it never existed. Would I do it? It took me five seconds to realize I wouldn't. I'd miss their stories, their mythic value. 
I miss the temple, even though I can't go inside. Maybe especially because I can't go inside. My identity, the person I've become, is as a non-Mormon, an outsider, the other. If the Mormons were gone, then who would I be? So I watch the light through the seasons as it hits the buildings downtown, seen through the trees in my neighborhood. This is where I meet and learn about the natural and supernatural worlds. My bones are made from dry desert air. My blood is made from water that falls as snow. My cells vibrate to the sound of train horns from the bottom of the valley. Listen, inside the tabernacle, the choir is humming. The prophet speaks. The morning breaks, the shadows flee. Low Zion standard is unfurled. The dawning of a brighter day, majestic rises on the world. Clouds of air disappear before the rays of truth divine. Glory bursting from afar, wide o'er the nations soon will shine. The tabernacle is the cosmic egg that holds the sound of the universe before the Big Bang. The choir softly hums, and the oval room becomes infinite, a nomosphere, a place where all things are true, even if they're all made up. This is something the Mormons can make happen, like magic, and they do it very well. I used to want to leave and never come back, but now I see I'm held here. I am the prisoner of Zion. 